Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. In this episode of White Collar Briefly, Paul Hirose, Perkins partner and former president of the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, speaks with Leila Seika about her leadership in confronting gender equality and racial equity issues in the tech industry. Leila is a partner with Operator Collective, a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, and co-founder of the Black Venture Institute. She was one of the most senior female executives at Salesforce when she tackled pay equity. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Hello, everybody. My name is Paul Hirose, and welcome to our episode of White Collar Briefly. I'm in the Los Angeles office of Perkins Coie, and I'm incredibly excited today because it's not every day you get a chance to speak with someone who has truly impacted society. And so I'm very honored to have Layla Seka as our guest today. Hello, Layla. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Layla Seka is a partner with Operator Collective, a venture capital firm in the Silicon Valley. And she recently co-founded uh, Black Venture Institute. So Layla, again, you know, thank you so much. I know you were with Salesforce for over 11 years. You built AppExchange. You were a senior vice president, general manager of Desk.com, EVP of AppExchange, and also executive vice president of, of mobile. I got so many things to ask you about. So the first thing, I, I, I got to jump into something really meaty here, just to let the audience see, you know, what a big baller you are. You had this really stellar career path, You're one of the uh, most senior female leaders at Salesforce, and you run into this issue, I, I mean, a huge issue, right? Not only in the tech industry, but across the world of pay equity. And so n- no sense asking the beginning question. Let's just jump into, can you tell me, please, how, how did you first become aware of like pay inequalities? I, I never... In any company that I've ever worked with or any firm I've worked with, do I know how much other people make? So how did you come across this and and what did you do? Sure. So I grew up in product. So I started my career in product management, which basically meant I worked in engineering. And I was always one of the only women. Um, Maybe a couple others, but really, and in product, I was often the only woman. So, you know, I, I recognized it before Salesforce. It just sort of became obvious in that water cooler talk. Just the, you know, I knew the people I worked with. I knew that they didn't come from family money. You know, they'd all worked hard. And, and then they were talking about buying things. The most expressed example is when Tesla first came out. And those cars were each 200, 250K a pop. Um, and they were all buying those cars. And I was like, well, that's insane. I mean, I could buy it, but it would be so stupid based on how much money I make. So I started feeling like something was up then. And then, uh, you know, I, I worked at Salesforce for a long time. I happened to be there when Mark started a program called the Women's Search. So he had basically looked around. We have a management meeting every quarter where we review the business and sort of go through things. And he had looked around that meeting and realized it was basically full of white, middle-aged men. And so he made a conscientious effort to look inside the organization for women that were vice presidents that were excelling professionally. And he started inviting a group of us to that meeting. So 
I was invited to that meeting. My friend Cindy was invited to that meeting as well as a number of other people. But both Cindy and I were promoted out of that meeting. And this is this is Mark Benioff? Mark Benioff. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Mark Benioff, CEO. And, so. Then, and so then you you and and so Cindy, Cindy Robbins is, Cindy is Robbins. what was what was your position at the time? And what's her position at the time? So when we were both going up, I was a vice president on the app exchange and she was a vice president of recruiting. So we were both vice presidents at that moment. Um, and then I was promoted into senior vice president and GM of desk. And a bit after about like some months after that, she was promoted to the head of HR for the whole organization. And then, you know, I, my career continued to flourish, but we had been friends for a long time. She lived with my college roommates after college in San Francisco. So we'd known each other for eons. And so we both rose up together. And I think we both left, it left us both thinking what was really great for us, but what, what can we do? Like that was just sort of touching the top of the problem here. We have a lot more going on. So we actually came up with kind of a three-pronged strategy. The first one was equal pay, where that had never really been done before, certainly not in a public company where two senior executives go to the leader of that company and say something like that. And in fact, while we were working on that program, um, a number of other people inside the company told us not to do it. You know, not because they didn't want to do the right thing, but because they were scared of the impact it might have on the company um, and protecting the company. And so there was a lot to consider when we were moving through that process. So equal pay was the primary one. We also wanted to have a women's conference at our annual Dreamforce conference. Now women's conferences happen fairly regularly, but back then that did not happen that a whole bunch of women in tech got together like that. And so it was sort of a, a, a revolutionary idea. And the third was to create a mentorship program inside the company for rising female executives. So we worked on the plan for equal pay for like a year. I think people sort of think like we had one idea and ran into Mark's office. It wasn't quite like that. We worked on that plan for a long time. Uh, there was no playbook for this. There was no, this is how you do a pay audit. So there was a lot of conversation about what that how that could work, what that could look like. Um, and Cindy really did take the lead on that because she ran HR, so sort of trying to conceptualize different ways that we could do that. But then, yeah, we went to, Cindy had a standing one-on-one -on -one with Mark. She sent him a note and said I was coming, which he, after the fact, was like, I thought it was a little weird that she was bringing back up to a one-on-one, -on -one, but um, which was sort of funny. But and we went and we had this meeting with him and we sort of said, I said, I don't think you're paying the women the same as the men. And his reaction was really strong. He was like, that's not possible. That's not the company I've created. And, and he is a really fair person. And he definitely created Salesforce with an ethos towards service from the get-go. You know, the foundation model that accompanied the company, which now is normal. That was not normal. He was the first one to do that. So, you know, he, but he, his reaction was fairly strong. And we were like, well, we think there's something wrong. And then I remember Cindy said to him, if we look at this, this isn't the kind of thing where we can pop the hood and see a problem and slam the hood down and run. Like, if we pop the hood and we find a problem, we have to fix the problem. And, you know, God bless Mark Benioff because he was like, go do it. Go, let's go. And it's really funny because when we walked out of there, both our moms were texting us like, what did he say? What did he say? Because we were, you know, it was we had it worked really hard to come up with the right thing. You first say, hey, there's an issue here. How much time between that and your meeting with Mark? Oh, I knew there was an issue with how I was being paid for years, like 15 years, almost my whole career. I knew something was wrong. 
I mean, I'm a very intuitive person. I have a very high EQ, right? Like I work on my gut uh, almost as much as I work on my brain. It just wasn't making sense. Like, how can, how do they have so much? How are they, how are they buying all these things? Like, and you know, people are idiots. They'll happily brag about how much money they have or what gadget they've bought. Like, so if you just quiet and listen, eventually you can start to be like, huh, this is not adding up correctly for me. So I think I knew my whole career something was rotten in Denmark. Okay, so then when you say to Cindy, there's something wrong here, we should do something about it. Tell me that evolution there. How did that come about? That was a conversation. You know, initially she was like, huh, let's think of other, th-. you know, like we, we, that was a hard nut to crack, right? We, that was the big kahuna. That was the big thing we wanted to do, which is, I think, why, you know, we talked about the women's conference and we talked about the mentoring program and it became a three pronged strategy. Mostly because we were, you know, trained by Mark Benioff to come up with three bronze strategies and go execute them like, you know, drill sergeants. So that took us some time. It took some time to think about Cindy being the one running HR, you know, that she had to really think about how that could come together. So that's why I tell you, like, it took us a year or so just the wor- working on it together, talking about it, talking with other people, getting advice getting different perspectives. It was not something we entered into like, oh yeah, let's try this today. No, no. Um, It was very well thought through. Okay. For the people in the audience who say, gee, I want to tackle a big issue. Layla Texas is a big issue, changes the face of the world. How do, how do you, what do you tell those people? Like what, what, what resistance do you meet? How do you overcome it? Give, give us some strategy here. Look, I mean, I didn't even know I was doing a big thing. Like it just felt like the next right action, right? At the time, I, I now realize we were doing a big, giant thing, and there are ramifications to doing things like that. Not everyone likes to see the status quo change, particularly those that are benefiting from the status quo the most. So certainly, we ran into obstacles. I ran into obstacles. People, people would say nasty things like, "She only has that job because you did this," or you know, like people had little nasty bits and pieces. I will say, in general, everyone was very receptive, and I and I will credit Salesforce for that because it was the kind of company where we were taught to bring our whole selves to work. We were taught to volunteer and bring our causes and our belief systems to work. So yes, there were. There, there was negativity and there were things in there that came out of it, but it didn't, it didn't even touch the positive. The other thing I will say to those people is I was very senior when I did this. I was not a director. I had made money. I was, my family was secure. Cindy was in a similar type of position. So like we, whatever risk we calculated into there, we were sure that we were going to be able to take anything that could have happened in that. So I I think that that is another thing people need to consider when they're looking to do something big. There are always going to be haters. There are always going to be people that are telling you what you're doing is wrong or bad or you're misguided or it's just a ploy or whatever different things people will come uh, come up with. You just have to be prepared to sort of push through that. Or recruit somebody who is senior or more senior to help you. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's what we did. We recruited Mark. Had Mark Benioff not said yes to this, Cindy and I would have just been two women who went and tried to do something and it didn't work. Like his involvement and his leadership and his, you know, the company, we had no idea. You know, it's a publicly traded company. You can't just find millions of dollars in an operating budget of a publicly traded company. So he just was like, this is the right thing to do. And that's what we're going to do. But you know, that, that takes a certain type of leader as well. And we knew him well. He was not, it wasn't like I'd never, I knew him very well. He knew me very well. He had 
committed to my career. He had already, we had an, you know, it's like mentor. So it was not, I was not going to a stranger. And, and I also didn't go to him with a problem and no solution. We went to him and said, we think this, and here's all the stuff we want to do to try to figure it out and fix it. If in fact we find the problem. And then I think that was a really key piece as well. So doing your homework, getting the right people on your team, right? Having the solution right there in front. And, and so what was the solution? Well, I mean, it ended up being a really complex audit that Cindy ran, right? And she certainly is a better one to speak to that because I didn't, wasn't in HR, right? So there was only so much I could do here. And then there's a part where I'm not engaged anymore. But we, she used a firm and they came up with a really detailed way of doing the audit that was repeatable. I think the other piece here is like equal pay is not a one and done. Right, like Salesforce did the first pay audit and found a $3 million issue. They did it a year later and they found another $3 million issue. And then a year later and then another $3 million issue. Now in that time they bought north of 50, 60 companies. And when you buy a company, you buy their hiring practices and you buy all their, you know, bias and other problems. So it was not like sales, you know, but, but I'm just showing you like there's a certain amount of commitment required to this. This is not, a, a story in the Wall Street Journal and you're done. This is changing the way you and your company are going to show up to your community in the world and how you prioritize and value people. And that that is a cultural shift that I think a lot of companies don't yet completely appreciate. So when the, the audit is performed, this is a pay audit, you're looking through employees, what people make and so forth. The adjustments that were made, was it all gender-based? What was what was the result? No, there were lots. Of, I mean, and again, the detailed details of this I was not in, right? Because I'm not in HR. Just to like make that point one more time. But um, I remember in the first audit, we found a lot of men. You know, certainly they were mostly women, but we found men. That, and maybe they were the quieter, more introverted person that didn't necessarily scream and yell every time they got a project across the line, but consistently performed and hadn't really been recognized appropriately. But in general, like, you know, it, we did find a lot of the issues were gender related. And then, you know, as that expanded out, we saw it into you know, different areas as well. So I think, and, and, and really the acquisition of companies became a very interesting metric too, just to better understand you know, what, what, what happens when you bring different, different sort of philosophies into the process. So ultimately you, you have the three prong program you bring, right? You got the women's conference, right? You have the mentorship program and pay equity. So what, what happens, what happens next? What happens at, at Salesforce that what's, what's the result of all of this? Well, it changed the face of our company, right? And it changed the face of tech and it changed, I think, corporate America. You know, we, no one had ever done this before and we did it and we did it loudly and proudly. And then Mark hired Tony Profit and that I think he's the first chief diversity officer, certainly first one I ever heard of in my life. But I think it's the first ever, I'm not sure. Certainly the first in tech. And Tony came on and all of a sudden, you know, we shifted the priorities of the company. Like it had always been trust and customer success and equality all of a sudden became a value that the company strived for and adhered to. And in doing that, you know, one of the first things I said to Mark was like when we were first pitching and I was like, if you do this, no one can hide. Like if you stand up, Mark Benioff, no one will be able to hide. And sure enough, that's what happened. Pay audit is now something people expect to see, at least in tech companies. I, I can't say the results are swimmingly beautiful everywhere, but at least the data is being provided and we're getting a better sense of things because data is empowerment. If, if you have data, you have power and you can go 
advocate for yourself or for others. So Layla, I like what you said about how you didn't start off with these big plants. You just felt like you had to do the next right action. And I know now you're at Operator Collective and I'd like you to tell us what is Operator Collective? You know, what, what, what's your, what's your, what's the deal here? Sure. So um, Operator Collective was started by my partner, Malin Yen, who's a lawyer. I know you all love lawyers. And the premise behind Operator Collective is this. Up until now, venture capital has essentially been controlled by a homogenous group of people. They essentially fund people that look like them and make people rich that look like them. And it just, the circle keeps going around and around. And the idea being that if we could change who the investors were, we could change the types of companies that were being built to be more reflective of the communities we live in. And so that was sort of the initial thing. The other thing about Operator Collective was this. While I worked at Salesforce, I ran the App Exchange, which is like Salesforce's app store, its whole channel. So every time we bought a company, I was involved, right, in some way or another. And so we would buy companies and then their founders, often white males, would come work at Salesforce for two years and then they'd leave and then they'd often go become venture capitalists. And then they would call the other executives at Salesforce, mostly white males, to invest in their funds and angel invest in this and do a little bit of this and that. No one was calling me. Finally, someone left that I was close with and I said, you better call me. And he called me and I went into his fund and we went early into Robinhood and we made a lot of money. And so for me, this was an income equality thing. This was just another place where women and people of color were not being led into the income stream. Malin came to the same realization on her own and hers was, you know, we further exemplified that by the fact that operators. So people like me who worked at Salesforce from you know, at the time it was a $500 million company up until it was a $17 billion company, but never founded anything. I just know how to scale things and make them get giant, right? But we were being left out of the venture conversation. So Operator Collective is $52 million venture fund. We have 130 LPs, 90% of them are women, 40% of them are people of color. It's a first time fund, you know, Malin and I are the partners. We have institutional investors in the fund, which is typically not done in a first time fund, but sort of shows you uh, how, how we are sort of bringing a different uh, lens to venture capital. Yeah, you've brought together like an incredible squad here. Can you tell us about those people? Sure. So, I mean, like it's Malin and I have a good match, right? It's sort of, I, I make this joke that she lives in the Woodside, like in the South Bay, and I live in Berkeley. And like, we, she covers up to San Francisco, and I take the North Bay into San Francisco and the East Bay. We have a lot of really great friends, and we did something smart from the get-go. We asked our friends to introduce us to their friends. Malin always has this funny thing she says where she's like, we could have created an Asian white lady fund all day long. That's easy for us. But we, we, we were conscious in trying to create a fund that was more representative. And I think that deliberate move throughout our fund creation. And then also as we've moved through and you know, we turn one on Friday, we're just one years old this week. You know, that, that, that's a huge part of how we think about what we want to do in the future and, and how we're going to tackle things now in the moment as well. So what type, what type of, uh, investments have you made or are you planning to make? <laughs> sure. So we've made a number, we've made over 20 investments. We invest in enterprise business to business. You know, I'm sure you can appreciate that as running the app exchange for almost 12 years, I saw almost every single enterprise SaaS app that came across my desk at one point or another. So I have some pretty decent pattern recognition. Malin has a similar type of background, um, including IP attorney, which makes her unbelievably value in so many different ways. Um, but we both came at Venture, you know, and, and had been around enterprise tech pretty much our entire career. So it's a natural extension for us. We've invested in companies that, 
help you get your sales team moving in a way that makes them more effective when they're remote. We've invested in EPM companies that are working to make the CFO a more of a strategic business partner and give, you know, business leads the tools they need to actually do planning at a financial level. So really, um, Malin makes a joke that it's all the unsexy industries. That's what we're interested in, which is kind of true. I also lean towards tech, so heavy developer productivity tech, a number of different things on that side of the equation. But really, great stuff. We're seeing great founders. We feel very lucky. We've met a lot of amazing people. Is there a difference between this fund and those? There are others, right, who are focused on on women, other diverse people. What sets you apart? I think the thing, so there are lots of funds that are focused on investing in, you know, underrepresented founders. That is actually not the focus of our fund. Although our portfolio does look that way. Our focus really was getting women and underrepresented people investing. Like we want the money in the companies and then, you know, doing that. So that was sort of our motion. You know, as I see it, it's really, we're all working together. At, at this point in the game, everyone in Silicon Valley in venture that's working towards trying to sort of break the cycle of it just being the same group of guys at the top getting the money over and over again. Even those guys are trying to break the cycle a little. Even them are like, okay, maybe we, you know. So I think it, I've been, there's a lot to do and, and, and we are nowhere near done, but I've seen some real camaraderie and partnership across organizations like Black VC and All Rays and, you know, different funds, Impact America Fund, you know, a, a, a ton of different funds where we're all trying to work together to sort of rise up, if you will. Okay, let, let's let's go to the next right action. Okay. <laughs> you recently co-founded Black Venture Institute. Can you tell us, you know, what what is Black Venture Institute? You know, what what's the mission here? Sure. So, you know, it's been a rough year. It's been a terrible year for everyone. You know, we just went back into shelter in place in Berkeley. It's where I live, where you grew up nearby. But uh, it was a really hard year. And when George Floyd was murdered, I just, I just felt so helpless. And I was tired of feeling helpless. And, I, and my mom always says, I'm good at this. Like, I'm good at looking at all the things around me and figuring out how to put them together and make them bigger. And so I sit on the board of part of the engineering school at Cal Berkeley. I clearly have deep ties to Salesforce. And Malin and I were on the phone talking about we got to do something. And one of the things when I went into venture, you know, if you'd asked me a year and a half ago if I was going to go into venture, I would have been like, oh, no, Paul, that's so hard. I don't know how to do that. I'm an operating exec. I can run billions of dollars in revenue. But no, no, I couldn't invest, which is malarkey, right? That is not the truth. I just didn't understand the language and I didn't understand the process. So once I got into venture and I learned all that and I figured all that out, I kept thinking, wow, if there had just been a course I could have taken where I learned all this really fast, I would have been able to go even faster than I did. So that idea had been in my head for a long time. But upon George Floyd's murder, I was like, I got to do something. So I called the University of California and they have a course where they teach venture capital, basically. And then I called Salesforce because uh, we needed to figure out how to pay for this and make this happen. And then I, I, I met up with Jackson Cummings at Salesforce, who is on the ventures team, who I had been friends with for a long time. And he introduced me to Black VC, which is a group of folks focused on Black people and venture capital. I don't know if you know this, but there are less than 75 people, Black people, that can write checks in venture capital, which is disgusting and atrocious and needs to be changed. So we basically all came together over the summer met twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays for an hour and a half each, 
trying to figure out how to do this, how to put together a program where we put 50 black executives through an intense venture capital course where they learn all the vernacular, they meet all the people, they spend time together. And we do that twice a year so that in three years we would have over 300 people that could write checks, whether they want to or not is up to them. So that was really the genesis of Black Venture Institute. And we just had our first one in, in the beginning of November. And, and I have to say, Paul, it uh, exceeded my expectations. And I had really high expectations. It was phenomenal. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I feel blessed that, that it came together so well. I'm uh, thinking about your progression here, right? You didn't set out to change the world, but here you are touching so many places that are affecting so many people. And it just... Just so much appreciate that. I, I know you're also with on the board of Girls Who Code. I am. Tell me, tell me about Girls Who Code. Girls Who Code is another organization which is just amazing, right? As, uh, attempting to make computers and computer science accessible to middle-aged and high school girls, and talk about a company or an organization that's pivoted. Up until COVID, all Girls Who Code activities happened inside of schools. So you can imagine when COVID hit. Uh, I've never seen a team pivot so hard and do such a good job to moving to all online programming and actually reaching even more folks in the middle of this terrible time. Another true joy and another area where just look, we are all it's a hard time right now. And I think more than ever, people are looking for ways to help. Right. To be to, to have a life that's a little more meaningful than just their bank account or what car they're driving. And I do think there are so many opportunities for us to do things like that, whether it's getting involved with an organization like Girls Who Code or doing something in your local environment or, or, or whatever with your church, whatever, whatever is the thing that, that motivates you. But I think that one I try to I'm trying to see the good in this COVID moment. And I do think one of the beautiful things in this COVID moment is people realize how much they need each other. And so maybe they're willing to work a little harder to help each other. You know, I, I've I've gotten to know you a little bit and have seen your impact, you know, being a change leader. And the advice you've given us today has been very inspirational. I know that you had at one time served in the Peace Corps and you were in Africa. I, I guess, did that experience shape you in such a big way or did it more reinforce who you already were? I think it totally shaped me. I, I think it didn't reinforce certain pieces, but I, you know, I didn't, I was a teenage girl. I was pretty much focused on me. That was all I had room for most of, most of that time. Right. And I was dyslexic. So I had a lot of trouble with school. So that was also a real challenging thing. School didn't come easy. So that, you know, I was chubby. I, a lot of that still I am chubby, but with that, you know, like a lot of those things were sort of shaped it. So, so, Peace Corps for me was probably one of the most fundamental things I ever did in my life. I, I moved to a country where I didn't speak the language. I moved to a country where I was the only white person for miles. And for a split second, I got to feel a totally different feeling just walking around than I did as a white, relatively privileged girl growing up in Berkeley, California, where I still felt like I was pretty woke growing up there. So Peace Corps forever changed my perspective. It changed my view on things. And it gave me a sense that I had to help. Like, I, I, I never really felt like, you know, being involved in doing things for other people after Peace Corps was not, it was a no brainer for me. It was just part of how I had to be. Honestly, it's part of why I went to Salesforce, because I couldn't believe they had a foundation set up next to their company and they were telling us to volunteer 
because I used to have to fight to like take a day off my vacation to go volunteer and it would kind of irritate me. I mean, I did it, but I was like, well, come on. Like I'd still want to go to the beach and volunteer. So Salesforce to me was a revolution because you had a whole week that you were supposed to volunteer. So yeah, I think P-Score shaped so many of the decisions and so many of the attitudes I had and then even the decisions I made professionally to which companies I wanted to work for. And, you know, I was the executive sponsor of Bold Force at Salesforce, which is the Black Employee resource group. And therein, I also went back to Peace Corps many times to try to get a better understanding of what it felt like to be black at Salesforce or what it felt like to be black in tech or what it felt like to be black in America. And I by no means understand what any of that feels like, but I certainly could understand that I needed to listen really closely. You, you touched on something about this past year. This year, it's been, it's been horrible, right? It, there, there's, we, we have faced the pandemic, the economic crisis, you know, global recession, maybe depression. You mentioned the murder of uh, George Floyd and, and many others. And um, we, we, we talk about climate change. We, there's so many things going on right now. And I agree with you that this is a time where we're able to see what's really important with each other. We, we, we can reach out to each other. And, and I think people are more open to that. And you coming from big tech, you coming from, you know, this crazy background, which you think is not like all planned out for you, but it sure seemed like it's planned out to me. What, what, you know, what, what, tell me what, what's tech going to do? What, what, where do you see the world going right now? Look, tech is out of reckoning, as are all of us, right? Everyone's having a little reckoning. I think George Floyd was a reckoning for a lot of people. They realized how racist they were, even though they didn't think they were, right? And tech's having its own reckoning. Here's the thing. Everything is tech now. It's not us and all of you. It's all the same thing. Like, it's mushing. So, you know, I do think certain companies have got to answer for the way things were built a long time ago and how that might be affecting now. And I think that things need to change and the government needs to regulate things and things need to, you know, things need to happen just like they do, just like when the railroad started, right? Like when the railroad started, eventually someone had to step in and start saying, this is how we're going to regulate how this all works a little bit. But, um, I think that one of the fundamental things I, I, I look, I still look, I grew up here. So did you, Paul. We're from this. This is my hometown, right? So like I, everyone keeps writing all these tweets about how they're leaving. I'm like, see you later. Maybe someone <laughs> doesn't work in tech and move back. But like, but I do think that techno every company is a technology company now. My dry cleaner is a technology company. She uses Salesforce. I'm in there like writing her dashboards for her while I pick up my dry cleaning. Like, so I just think that. Like anything, it was a lot fast in tech, and I was part of that, and it was great. I really thought we were solving all of the world's problems, and we were doing amazing stuff, and we did do a lot of amazing stuff. We did a lot of stuff wrong, too, and so just like any sane human being needs to do, we need to evaluate that and correct and put regulations in place so we don't do that again. I don't know what the next right action is for you, but you're actually doing certain right actions right now, so how can I and members of our audience, how can we support you? How can we help you operate a collective, Black Venture Institute, Girls Who Code? What What is it that you need? I mean, I think that, uh, that I mean, hey, I think that those are just things I'm doing, right? I mean, I'm, I always want your support and any like any amplification of the work everyone's doing and the, the hard stuff that's going on, you know, I'm always for that type of stuff. I, I, my main thing, you know, I, I think I would turn it back on the listener and say, 
You have so much more power than you think you do. Like, and no one would have told me I was going to do equal pay or none of this. I was just trying to pay the mortgage. You know, I was not, you have a lot of power. You can do a lot of stuff. And even more when you join with other people, like Cindy and I joined together is what made Equal Pay so special. Malin and I joined together is what makes Operator Collective so interesting. And it doesn't, I mean, yes, I've had some, I can't believe some of the things that happened. I'm still sort of shocked at the impact when people come up to me and they're like, I got a raise because of you. It's great. It's awesome. But, you know, I, I still worry about my kids' school and the teachers there and the heating and do they have the right computers? Like, it doesn't always, you can do a lot of stuff locally that has an impact. I just think like now more than ever, like we really need to help each other. You know, the community as it once existed has broken down significantly and there are new communities online and in different places. But, you know, I, I, when people ask me what they should do to make the world better, I'm like, focus on building a bigger community. Like where, how, that doesn't matter. Just make more people feel included. You didn't answer my question. How can people support you? How can people support Operator Collective? Is it, as, is it as simple as spreading the word about what you guys are doing? I mean, you'd be surprised how few people know about this. Like how few people know that less than 75 black people can write checks in venture or that most women operators aren't included in investing or, you know, these aren't like well-known facts or the girls are dissuaded from doing computer service and math early in school. Like you know it, but you don't know it. There is something to keeping that. Like you mentioned climate change. Like we can't talk about that enough. You know, like we can't bring that up enough, especially when there's fires raging and hurricanes, you know, like, why aren't we talking about that every minute of every day? Right. So I I do really think amplification of the message is the most important thing for us right now. And find your way to to do. It doesn't have to be you can donate a coat. Like it doesn't always have to be change equal pay for corporate America. Like just do your part to make the world less nasty. So. You're asking each of us, all the listeners asking me, just do the next right action. Yeah, basically, next best action. If you do that all the time, like everyone's like, Layla, how'd you build this great career? You're dyslexic, you're this. I just did the next best action. Like that's all I've ever done. Okay, I just did this, what's the next best action? What's the next best action? It's a software paradigm. You realize like we basically build software. It's like try to guide the user to the next best action. So since I spent my whole life building software, somewhere along the line, my brain just started going, what's the next best action? So hopefully, if that's helpful framing for someone, I, you know, I hope they take it, use it. So audience, please, yeah, do the next right action. Layla, thank you so much. I, this is so inspirational. I really appreciate you taking this you know, really valuable time your valuable time to spend with us. So on behalf of Perkins Coie, myself, you know, all the listeners, thank you so much. Paul, you're a special person. I appreciate you having me on. I'll do anything for you. Paul's sister is my kid's teacher. Just so you all know, my kid's fourth grade teacher and one of my favorite people on earth. So well, your sister and you, and we're all Bay Area natives. So we've got to stick together. Warriors! <laughs> thank you, Layla. Take care. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.